Hi, everyone. It's Allison here. I'm so excited to share with you my conversation with Tristan Handy, founder and CEO at DBT Labs. Tristan has a special leadership style. It's different from what I've seen from many other CEOs, particularly CEOs five or 10 years ago. Together with the culture that his team has built, his new brand of leadership has contributed to a staggeringly high employee NPS of 90. As you probably know, I've spent a lot of time thinking about net promoter score. Values that high are basically unheard of. Tristan is a humble person and often doesn't seek out the limelight. But DBT's culture may be among the tech industry's best kept secrets. So I was excited that he agreed to publish this conversation with me. Hope you enjoy it as much as I did and feel free to reach out to me with any feedback. Let's dive in. Thank you so much for joining me in this conversation about your culture, your values, your leadership style. I think there's something really special about the way that you all run your company. I've worked with a number of different companies over the years, and I haven't quite seen anything like this before. So I'm excited to talk more with you about what makes this unique and maybe even see if we can, and maybe you've already thought about this, but if we can sort of use some language to describe actually what makes this unique, there might be a new brand of leadership that you're developing. So I'm I'm Uh, excited to dive in. I'm excited too, partially because maybe you can help me figure out what it is that we are doing. It's been a long time. It's been almost six years since I've existed in any other professional context than the like little bubble that we have created for ourselves here. And so sometimes I forget how different, you know, like Notion didn't exist last time I worked anywhere else. And so to a certain extent, there've been all these tools like Zoom didn't exist the last place I worked and COVID certainly hadn't happened. And so there's all these new contexts and we've adapted to them. And it sounds like we've adapted to them at times in different ways than other companies have. Yeah. So there might be something about the timing of all this that's making your leadership (laughs) style possible or, or more likely. I always thought that I did not want to be the CEO of a large company because I had this idea in my head of what it meant to be the CEO of a large company. And kind of central to that was standing in front of a bunch of people at all hands and delivering these kind of rah-rah experiences, like getting the troops riled up. And that w- that's just so not me. And we started doing remote all hands in 2018. And immediately it started feeling so much better. I actually like the one-to-one like peer level relationships that exist in these Zoom boxes, even if there's a a couple hundred of them. I think the changing context of work actually does enable different leadership styles. And I absolutely would not have been a good CEO in the context of work from 10 years ago. I'm so happy that you brought this up because I've been thinking a lot about this, especially lately. I've had some interactions where it just really struck me how different the type of leaders are that are kind of optimized for different environments for a long time. And we learned this in you know business school. And I think just visually, it was so apparent that to be a great CEO, there were certain physical characteristics yeah, that you yeah. probably would have, statistically speaking, like probably you would be have like a loud voice and you would be tall and you would have yep. like a commanding presence. And you know, I, I think this is particularly notable if you show up at, for example, a public board meeting, or if you go to large companies and you see who's sitting around the executive table, often they look and present themselves in a certain way. 
And of course, you know, for me being, I'll share this with the audience, five, three and a half. And I'm five, four. I have a half an inch on you. There you go. <laughs> and particularly, and you and I might've talked about this before, I became pregnant for the first time during the pandemic. And I was doing keynotes and having meetings with entrepreneurs, raising my fund. And no one had any idea that I was pregnant because yep. the camera only covers, you know, shoulders up. It's not like I was trying to hide the fact that I was pregnant, but there was something I think very interesting about that not being part of the the conversation. In a way, there's, I think, a lot of maybe variety that's allowed among leaders by not having in-person interactions. And even something as simple as the introvert-extrovert dichotomy, I have to imagine that the CEO job of 10 years ago selected for extroverts maybe not always, but it probably tended in that direction. And I remember we did our first in-person offsite with the whole company in the beginning of November, so about a month ago when we were recording this. And it was the first time that a big group of us had been together since pre-pandemic when the company was 18 people and now we're 150 people and 130 of us got together in person. And in another version of this world, I would have felt like I needed to be on all the time. And needed to like be glad handing and like making sure that everybody felt welcome and that everyone's happy and all of this stuff. But somehow the culture that has arisen in this group of humans is very peer to peer. There was no expectation that I was going to be the social glue that held things together. And so I actually was free to be kind of my introvert self. I ended up having a lot of one-on-one conversations where I would like go deep with somebody for an hour as opposed to like going from group to group to group and patting everybody on the back. That's so fascinating. And I agree that the introvert extrovert advantage, so to speak, kind of shifts when you're remote. I've been thinking a lot about this and think that the fact that introverts, I think, enjoy potentially remote communication better, Mm -hmm. I think might have to do with the amount of information that is able to come to you through Zoom. This is just another way of saying, I think what a lot of people have said, but the signals that you get from people are sometimes muted when you're on camera versus in person. For example, for sure, me, sure, sure, sure. so I actually probably lean extrovert in the sense that I tend to get mm. a lot of energy from people. But I, I think the brand of extrovert that I am is actually more empath than anything else. I, mm. I, I'm empathic in the sense that I, I absorb a ton of emotion from other people. And often when I'm meeting someone for the first time, there's a wealth of information that's like coming to me through cues that I don't even, (laughs) I'm not even totally conscious of. And so interestingly, I think in-person meetings can be sometimes more effective for me because I am able to absorb so much more information. But what's actually sometimes nice about chatting with someone over Zoom is that that information is now heavily filtered. And so I can focus so much more on the content of what they're saying, as opposed to the vibes that yes. I'm getting. So there's the content of what they're saying, but there's enough of the like interpersonal cues that you get. It's, it's not like they're totally absent. Like we probably all have figured out how to do this. You like align your zoom box close enough with your camera. So it feels like you get the sense of eye contact and all of this stuff. I think that focus is actually really important for me. And also just like some level of distance from the person I'm talking to, because So one of the things that we've had to work on, and this is like become a core part of our culture, is vulnerability. So like when 
who's the person who popularized this concept? My wife loves her. Brene Brown. Brene Brown. Brene Brown. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, like, you know, I've watched the TED Talk too. It's it's fantastic. But when you are distributed, you have to be much more explicit about the emotions that you're experiencing. Any kind of like interpersonal challenges that come up, you have to actually like put words to them and, and address them head on because otherwise it's actually not possible for the other person to know that you're experiencing like a high degree of stress or whatever it is. And so sometimes it's very hard to have those conversations. And I hate doing that in person because it's like such awkward. You're literally in the, you know, you watch Curb Your Enthusiasm and like the only way Larry David could actually ever have any of these interactions is that like, and then the scene ends. You don't have to figure out how to like walk away from each other and having like embarrassed yourself. But in Zoom land, I've become much more comfortable with vulnerability because there's these like clear definite the, the boxes. Like at the end, I push command Q and enter and that's fucking done. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, and maybe in a way, yeah, it helps you free your mind for the next conversations so that you can be fully present for that next person who really, really needs you. I think normally people would say, well, it's good to become more comfortable with that intimacy that you have with someone when you're in person. But maybe on the other hand, it it causes people to shut down further, kind of empirically. And so like in person? In person. Yeah. Is that kind of what you're saying? That I think that we have just become used to a certain way of being with people because that, that has always been in person. And if we do the remote thing for another 10 years and then we look back on our in-person interactions, I think we will find that in some ways they were much richer, but in some ways they were much poorer. I think that they allowed us to get away with a lot of not goodness, the kind of physical attributes that we were talking about before, certainly not very inclusive. The whole dynamic of like, there's no way to indicate that you want to say something other than just like talking over somebody else and like, like just talking louder, just like little things like the zoom reaction. that's like a hand raise. It's like it, that doesn't exist in, in real life. So I think that there's a large number of ways in which we will find that remote conversations have qualities that are actually richer. Yes. And I imagine not having interperson interaction helps people open up more. I mean, there are all sorts of examples of people opening up more online. For example, um, yep, yep. there's that like suicide helpline that's purely yep. over text. The fact that people are willing to share often some of the most intimate details of their life on Twitter is probably a sign that online interaction helps people open up more. So we have a bunch of you know interest groups in Slack and people talk about things that are totally unrelated to work. And we have one channel called Mental Health Neurodiversity. And it is wild. I am in this channel and participate in conversations where people are like legitimately talking about their struggles. And, you know, I've volunteered my own stories over the past year, but I just can't imagine that that conversation would have happened in person. Hmm. So do you think that remote work is helping us connect more deeply? So I think it's bimodal. Before we hit record here, we were talking about our conference, Coalesce, and what we're trying to do is no longer rely on building the best in-person conference event next year once hopefully we're able to do that. We're trying to figure out what is the best of a virtual conference and what's the best of an in-person conference and how do we have both of those things at the same time. And so you know, we copy a lot off GitLab. And I think the thing that GitLab 
does that we have are trying to copy is that they both believe like deeply in distributed work, but then also invest very heavily in their in-person interactions when they occur. They give everybody, I don't know if there's a specific budget or there's kind of carte blanche to like travel to work with each other when they feel like that's important. They do, I think one or two times a year, like the whole company gets together. So it's not that in-person is not important. It's that like there's different modalities and both of them have their strengths and weaknesses. Yes. I want to start segueing into not just how have you all responded to the times that we're in, because certainly there's an aspect of changing mm. the way that you're doing business simply because we've been in a pandemic and adopting more technology, but move also to what you've done, I think deliberately, maybe even in a way that preceded the pandemic. Sure. So I know, for example, that you spent a huge amount of time, or at least it, it looked like there was a lot of time spent designing your values, certainly like they're phrased in a very thoughtful, precise way that I haven't seen from other companies. Can you tell us about how you went about choosing them and choosing the words to describe them? Yeah. So we have a set of 13 values, I believe 11 of which were written in April of 2016, which I wrote in April of 2016, prior to the LLC only came into existence in May of that year. So the the values actually predate the existence of the, the corporate entity. And it was, so I have this, probably before starting the company, I had this decade-long fascination with like how to make capitalism do societally beneficial things. I have an MBA that I, I focused on corporate social responsibility. It was kind of for that entire period, and maybe still is like my it's like my topic. It's like the thing that I care about more than anything else. And so I never really seen myself as a founder, and but I felt life kind of like pulling me in this direction. And so I was like, well, if I'm going to do this, then it's like my opportunity to see if I can put all of these thoughts that have existed in my brain for a long time into action. So like, how did these come into being? Well, it's like combination of academic study and like literally thousands of hours of reading and uh, it kind of ready to be pulled out and written. Um, and that's not to say that they ha there hasn't been like plenty of wordsmithing and, and tweaking around the edges. You know, my, my co-founder Drew actually took one of my thoughts and sharpened it very significantly into one of our most important values today. It's just, we are human. So I think most companies do the whole values thing once they get to some point in the growth curve and they're like, oh shit, everybody like thinks different things and probably we should tell them all to think the same thing. And so that you like go through this values exercise, which is almost like more branding than anything else. But this, my last, the thing that I wrote last in this values list was values are more important than success. So to me, it was this statement of like, if I'm going to spend my time on this thing, then it must have these characteristics. And if it doesn't, then it's not worth my time. I love that. And I know from experience how hard it can be to write something well when you haven't thought about it much. It mm. sounds like for you, there were thousands of hours of thinking that preceded the writing. So Never like specifically for this. It was just like my area of interest over the course of a long time. Just to give folks an example of value. I mean, you mentioned the we are human values mm -hmm. being one of the most important. I know that I believe in that one. And I think the others as well. There's often multiple sentences that kind yeah, of, follow. Yeah, I'm yeah. wondering if you could share an example of, of all yeah. of them. I'm sure you don't have them memorized, so maybe we could pull them um, up. Yeah. Let me pull it. There's a markdown document in our 
corp GitHub repo. You can see literally every edit that's ever been made to these. So the human, we are human, we are human. We are human beings innovating in a shared service to a mission. We structure our compensation and benefits, work hours and location policies, work and management styles and employee agreements to support this fundamental humanness. We bring our whole selves to work and we recognize that our identities extend beyond the work that we do. Yeah, you can tell. There are many words that I think are very precise that are a part of that. And I, I think that preciseness, first of all, is, is representative of what I know about all of you, right? In terms of the precision with which you talk and work, and maybe we can kind of get into that a little bit later. I, I think in this case, and probably in other cases too, the precision ensures that there can be probably less debate about what that value means. And I, I think just using this as an example, Probably different people, if they just saw we are human, mm -hmm. they might have different notions of what that means. Mm -hmm. I think this is important because I have noticed that often, unfortunately, in some environments, values can be used almost as weapons against others. Like, I, uh. oh, I noticed this person is not following this particular value, at least according to how I interpret I think a lot of times it's by like, longer tenured employees against less longer tenured employees because you you have like more claim towards like values legitimacy or something like that and he's like yeah we went through a rebranding exercise renaming the company from fishtown analytics to dbt labs over this past summer and the agency that we work with it and this is not a slight to them because they did fantastic work with us they were like your values all told have 615 words like <laughs> That's nuts. Like, uh, you, how about we get down to seven words? And we're like, N -n no, we're not, we're not going to do that. I, I think that like, it's partially being specific, but it's also partially like taking these strong stands. Like you, you partially define yourself by what you are not. And so sometimes you, you worry by, that by taking a strong stand, you'll turn some people off. But what we found is that they're, are really a large number of people in the world. And maybe we are turning some of them off, but we have a lot of people that come to us and they say like, I am talking to you today about working at your company because I love your values. Yeah. Oh, I love that. That's beautiful. The fact that you are, you have a, a sort of a wedge in terms of the values that you've selected and not selected. It's analogous to maybe launching a product, right? Where you like launch mm -hmm, and it's mm -hmm. a wedge and you're going to, turn people off and say, we're not taking on these customers, but these are going to be obsessed with us. The company is a product and the, the consumers of your company product are probably the, the first, your employees. There's a lot of metrics that I could get excited about over the past year, but the one that makes me more excited than anything is our engagement score. So we, we measure ENPS, something like quarterly. We recently did one right after our retreat and our ENPS was 90. Uh, I've never heard of that before. Yes, yes. That, I mean, that's just remarkable. And, and, we, and I'll add that we talk about this in board meetings. And I think people consider that to be a primary metric that we care about. Obviously, yeah, you are yeah. super, growing super fast, but, um, but that, that employee score, I think, is definitely a highlight. You all are obviously data people, right? You're building a data company. You have many former data scientists at your company. Even the folks who are not formally trained as data scientists are very data literate. And I, I know you track sort of how many employees are actually you know, actively using your product and in the course of their day-to-day -day work. How do you think that focus on data affects your culture? 
or or maybe informs your culture? Yeah, it's a hard question because one, there's like a million things that I could say there, and two, it's it's really hard for me to know because I it's it's been a long time since I've worked in an environment that's been different from that. Like even the last company that I worked at, RJ Metrics, was was a very data driven. I mean, it was a it was a BI tool, and it was founded by data people and employed a ton of data people. If I think that the failure mode that we sometimes exhibited at RJ that I think we do a lot better at at DBT Labs is that there can be when you get a, around a bunch of data people, there can be analysis paralysis. Like everybody just wants to continue to debate and add more data points and all of this. And and I think that it might actually be my own DNA that helps us avoid this, which like I'm a data person only insofar as like data has over the course of my career helped me solve problems. I'm I'm actually not that academically interested in data. I you know I I like know enough about machine learning algorithms to like have smart conversations about them and to like imagine how we might build products around them but like you get me into a, a classroom to do um, linear algebra and I'm, I'm just like actually not that interested. Um, and so I we have a real bias for action and we use data to inform our perspectives but never to like slow down the decision making process like data is actually not that interesting it should actually just it should be in service to like the doing of the thing that we're all actually here to do yes having been an observer of and a little bit participant in a number of dbt meetings i have noticed a lot of ways in which data affects the dynamic i think one is I think you all are very thoughtful about the decisions that you make. I definitely don't think you fall in the realm of analysis paralysis, but I compared to other companies, I think in a lot of other companies, there's often a lot of top-down intuition that's imposed and drives the conversation, sometimes despite data that yep. exists. I think you all have great intuition, but also want to hear from other people, what they're noticing, you know, based on the data that they've gathered. And so I, I think there's a, there's kind of a, you, a breakdown if data of leaders, that happens. If leaders at companies are fundamentally data people, then they will not actually look to elevate their own perspectives. They're, okay, there maybe there's like this small number of kind of fundamentally immeasurable things that that like maybe my perspective is unique and valuable on internally, but those are, a, that's a shrinking set of, of things. And the more that we can, you know, as leaders push the rest of our organization to be able to have a better perspective on a given thing than we do, then that's, that's success. That's like what we're trying to do here with scale organizations. I think that leaders are too often resistant to doing that. And I think in part, it's because they design these information processing algorithms like, you know, the weekly PowerPoint email update that shows whatever. And it's like a limited distribution list or that you like control access to information. So there is actually a very small set of people who, who have enough information to have good perspectives. Yes. Yeah. Even just the availability of data to a broader population enables greater input gathered from across the company. It actually, in hearing you talk about this, it makes me wonder if your approach is the antithesis of the Steve Jobs approach. 
to try. I mean, I, I'm I'm trying to kind of box this a little bit, package it up. So yeah, yeah. Try to get words. I mean, is are you kind of the anti Steve Jobs? That's funny. No one had ever accused me of that internally. Um, <laughs> so I know that I've been annoying a lot of people recently by using this this term bimodal a lot. But I used to ask in interview questions of product people, "Are you Steve Jobs or are you Steve Blank?" Because those to me seem like the opposite approaches to like product innovation. And I think that both of those tendencies live inside of me and in worlds in which we can actually like the correct answer is just the optimization of a single metric. Like, hell yeah. Like let's have a data-driven conversation. Let's be egoless, et cetera. But I guarantee you that the experience that is created for a DBT user when they get a couple hours into this, into using the product where they're just like, holy shit, this is really easy and pleasant. We didn't create that from a data-driven perspective. We, it was like, it was a Steve Jobs type approach that got us there. Okay. So I think my first attempt at boxing is a fail. <laughs> Have you thought about what words describe what you do? Mm, there's notice how th- like different processes that decisions get made in and use the right process for a given decision. So we have this heavily collaborative decision-making approach to some pricing work that we're doing internally right now. And you got to participate in a bunch of that. And there are, let's just say that in doing pricing work, there's like a hundred different micro decisions that need to get made. So we actually try our best to like, outline what those hundred decisions are. We outline who's the decision maker for each of them and like how we're going to do like who, who are the in, input givers or something like that. And there are probably out of these hundred decisions, there are going to be five of them that I'm going to say, like, I don't really care about anyone else's perspective here. I'm going to decide these five things. But for the other 95 things, either I'm going to be consulted on some small number of them, or else I'm like literally not going to be involved at all because everybody else is better suited to make that decision. So I think it's, maybe it's back to this like distributed versus in-person question. Like, like if you are making these kinds of decisions and for us, Notion is our, probably our biggest asynchronous tool, then it, it actually pushes you to be very structured and like, okay, let's outline the problem. Let's break it down. And if, if your tool for making decisions is like conference rooms and whiteboards, it actually encourages you to be very unstructured. Mm, yeah. So sometimes the tools themselves actually for sure drive the process and therefore your choice of tools is really important. You've, cho- you've chosen a tool that mirrors how you would like to make decisions. Yeah. The furthest away from the, to talk about these like two big different, different decision-making processes, the, the furthest away from this pricing related stuff that we've been talking about where it's like very kind of rigorous and broken down is like Drew and I getting together to think about the long-term product strategy, to think about like, how do we bring X big new thing into life? And and that is like, we literally both show up at our Philadelphia office. We have a whiteboard and we just sit there for four hours and until we feel good. I think there's a deliberateness to what you all do that feels distinctive. That word tends to come to mind a lot, being deliberate. <laughs> I agree with that. But like, have you ever read the GitLab handbook? We're lightweights. 
they are extremely deliberate after thousands of pages of writing how they operate. Yes. Deliberate pragmatically, maybe. Yes, yes, yes. You're deliberate about how you're deliberate. (laughs) What other adjectives do you think describe how you all run the company? Collaborative. That word often has very negative overtones in that like it sometimes describes environments where like nothing ever gets done. But I think that if you combine collaborative with some of our positive traits, like the ability to be vulnerable and the ability to like, like, and to truly be mission driven, we, I think, do a good job of working cross-functionally and, and not getting slowed down in a morass. I talk a lot about trust falls. I think there's a lot of times that, especially in a, in a Slack environment where like everything that you say is around forever, it can feel very risky to say things in public channels. And so we actually have this like weirdly positive emoji culture where like anytime somebody says anything that seems like it might've been a little risky, it's like there's this overwhelming desire on the part of the people reading that to reaffirm like, hey, thank you for saying that. And you can do that with like like such simple emoji usage, like just like over the course of the pandemic, there were a lot of times where I had to write kind of very stressful, emotionally loaded like posts about, you know, how we were responding to this like global tragedy. And it's crazy. The, The amount that I cared about the number of heart emojis that existed on one of these posts, like it, it really meant a lot to me. Those are some that come to the top of my brain. I think there's also something distinctive about the way that you all are willing to challenge each other in different Mm. ways. You've witnessed that, have you? (laughs) I have witnessed that. And I've also been challenged by your team members, I think in really thoughtful ways. I did a roundtable with your women's organization, I think it was about a week ago. And I shared in sort of the following language, kind of a vulnerable story. I said, I like many women have been sexually harassed in a work environment, but not in an extreme way. Mm -hmm. And what I meant by that was that I hadn't been raped. Like, you know, there's a whole set of kind of extreme examples that are unfortunately more common than you would hope an extreme event would be. And in saying that, I wanted to clarify that I had experienced, I think, something that many women had, but, but people didn't necessarily need to feel an excessive amount of empathy for my situation. And I I think in general, I I don't like to think of myself as a victim. And so this is sort of the context in which I was sharing this. And one of the participants in the group said, oh, but you shouldn't caveat that, right? I mean, that if any form of sexual harassment is horrible and unacceptable. And when they said that, I said, of course, you're absolutely right. If any of you use the language that I used... (laughs) I would, I mean, particularly as a board member, right? Um, I would have been very concerned. And so I I thought it was, you know, noteworthy, first of all, that that they were willing to speak up and kind of help me correct my language, you know, being, it's it's hard to challenge, I think, a board Mm -hmm, director. mm -hmm. But also, I think their sort of sensitivity to the experiences that people have in the work environment was also, the level of empathy, I think, that was expressed was very high. Yep. It's another one of those things that I think is harder to do in person. I think that having productive conflict is actually much easier if you need to, for a minute, turn your video off for, you know, to like, whether it's just to like, go get a drink or just like pace for a couple minutes, whatever it is, like, gosh, I get challenged 
all the time. It's terrible. I hate it. <laughs> um, you know, one of the one of the things that I do every week is I on Wednesday from one to two p.m. Eastern, I have office hours, and there's between eight and thirty people that show up on any given week, and and sometimes they're kind of like low key interesting talks about the industry or what whatever. It's whatever people show up and want to talk about. But sometimes there's something like controversial that's happened at the company. And gosh, anytime anything controversial happens at the company, like I know that my next office hours is going to be like stressful. And and so I've just learned to just go with it. Just keep taking deep breaths and do the best I can. But like I I love that. It's 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 way better than a bunch of dissatisfied people around water coolers complaining. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think it shows a high degree of openness, you know, on on your part and also confidence, right? I mean, I, I think it takes confidence to welcome disagreement and also just not just confidence in yourself, but I think confidence in in your company's ability to process to that. Yeah, yeah. And in the, in the process. I know that you interview every finalist candidate for values fit. Mm -hmm. Can you tell the audience about your process and, and especially what signals are you looking for when you interview them? There are really two things. My, my, and I'm like ruining this prompt now for everybody that ever listens to this, but I ask people to talk about their life stories because really our values have to be lived. If we write them down, but we don't live them, then they're not actually our values. And so I give them, there's, I have this whole preamble that I always give at the beginning, because otherwise I would never get useful stuff. It's, people are trained to, like, in interviews, tell only their most amazing things, the high notes that they've hit throughout their careers. And what I coach them on is, like, one, this is not about you as a professional, it's about you as a human, so, like, everything. And two, the stuff that will actually define your values is almost always the low points of your life, the hard things that you've faced. And, and so it becomes this like very rapid exercise of like trust building. Like, can I get somebody who I literally just met to talk about some of the hardest things that they've been through in their lives? And so I, I've developed different ways that I've figured out to try to get that stuff from people. But it is, it's really like a, a real demonstration of our humanity value, our humility value, our transparency value, and like the ability to like be vulnerable with without which like you literally will not function in our environment. It's very intense. And it's like such a privilege to do them. There are times in which I've heard from candidates that like their experience in doing this interview was like the thing that encouraged them to join the company. There have also been a non-trivial number of people that if there have been tears on both sides of the, uh, because like, you know, life is messy and often emotional. Are you looking for people who have been through hard things as well? Or is it more about their willingness to talk about them? I've done this interview a couple hundred times, maybe 300 times, and I've never run into anybody who hasn't had hard things show up in their lives. Like, I'm sure that those people exist, but like, I think, I think most of us have actually experienced hard things. And so it's really a question of how have you responded to those? Have you processed them in a way that makes you able to actually talk about them? And are, are you willing to? I really would love to continue this conversation. Maybe we can have a series of podcasts about thoughts on leadership and culture, but this is so much fun, Tristan. I'm really this is super fun. It. Thank you so much for doing it.